chapter 21 of the book of Acts. We are on the beach at Miletus. If you guys remember, let's get our locations, right? Miletus, you see it there? That's where we are, Miletus. Miletus, right there. We're on the beach at Miletus, and Paul has called for the elders from Ephesus. There's Ephesus 30 miles above Miletus. They've come down from Ephesus to Miletus, and um, he gave them some exhortations about feeding the flock of God, the church that the Lord has purchased in his own blood, knowing that after my departure, grievous wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock, and then men are going to rise out of your own midst, drawing disciples after themselves. Instead of after the Lord, he challenges them, he gives them exhortation, and then it says they kneel down there on the beach because they're somewhere where he's going to board ship. And they pray. And chapter 20 ends, it says, When he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell upon Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And then they accompanied him unto the ship. So uh, Paul so often seems cool and calculated and pragmatic, but evidently uh, part of his personality was very tender as well. And twice in chapter 20, he tells us he wept as he instructed them and his heart was broken. And uh, in return, they realized when they saw his vulnerability, now they're praying with him, they're weeping there on the beach at Miletus, he is trying, he feels the Lord's leading him to get to Jerusalem, uh, which is not on there, is it? Try to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost and uh, one of the feasts. And he just feels like he's supposed to do that. He says, the Holy Spirit's warning me there's difficulty, trials waiting me, but none of these things move me. Now, he's going to encounter that again as he begins to make this journey to Jerusalem. Chapter 21 says, And it came to pass, after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Kos, and the day following to Rhodes, and from then to Patras. So he's taking this journey from Miletus to Kos to Paphos, there's Kos, uh, Patra, you see it there, roads and the way on being there. You guys see that? It is Miletus, Kos, uh, Rhodes, Patra. And uh, the, the ship that he's on is called a there's a, a Greek name for it, and Luke uses it, and it's just a coaster. The, the, the idea is it just goes along the coast. This is not a bigger ship that goes into the open sea, but it was common for this type of ship to go along the coast of Asia there. And it says, it came to pass that after we, Luke is there, 
were gotten from them. And, and the Greek is very interesting. It's after we were torn away from them. It speaks of great emotion. Paul had been there in Ephesus for three years. And Luke says, you know, we had to tear ourselves away from them. And then had launched, he says, we came with a straight course. He uses nautical terms. Unto Kos. I showed you where that was. Uh, Kos is about 40 miles. Um, Kos has little significance to us, but it is where Hippocrates started the first medical school and uh, five centuries before Christ. So it had that attached to it. And then he says, when we were gotten, we came from Kos the day following we went to Rhodes, which is about 50 miles. Rhodes is famous for the Colossus of Rhodes, um, a statue of Apollos, and uh, was 105 foot tall, they said. And you'd come in through the, the harbor, sail through the legs, and it was one of the seven wonders of the world. But about three centuries before this, it was destroyed in an earthquake. And then from Rhodes, it says, from thence we then came to Patra, we're about 40 miles again, and finding now a ship sailing to Phoenicia, where Tyre is, in Sidon, we went aboard and set forth. Now it's about 400 miles. Now they're going to go in the open sea from Patras all the way down here to Tyre, the area called Phoenicia, where Tyre and Sidon are. So they're going to come here from Patras all the way down to Tyre. And it's a much bigger ship. It's not one of these coasters. Uh, in fact, if you look there, it says in verses 2 and 3, finding a ship, they had to do that, sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. And when we had discovered, we've come along the, the border of Cyprus, we left it on the left-hand side, so we know they're out in the ocean. They're on this side of Cyprus, here on the left, uh, where him and Barnabas, Barnabas began the first missionary journey. He says, we came by Cyprus, he says, and we left it on the left, Hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre. So it says, for there the ship was unloading her burden. So probably a grain ship. They were larger. Uh, there were no Disney cruises and none of that. So if you were going to travel in the Mediterranean world, you paid a fee to be on the deck of a grain ship or a cargo ship. There was no compartments. So you would set up a tent. Paul's a tent maker, no doubt had sold many tents to people traveling the seas. Uh, if not, you were just wrapped in your cloak trying to stay warm. And if it rained, that was too bad. You got a bath and a journey. Uh, you know, now this is 400 miles. We're not told how many of these guys he's traveling with. There's nine of them, and then including Paul, they're traveling. We're not told out of 10 guys, somebody gets seasick. I guarantee you. There's no way. You know, so this journey 
is, is uh, in some ways, you know, uh, calling for great commitment. It's sacrificial in some ways. It's hard for us to imagine being out at sea now, that last leg of uh, 400 miles at sea, um, what that was like. But sometimes they think, what were the conversations like? You know, Luke's there, Titus is there. Timothy's there, Aristarchus is there, Tychicus is there. You go through the list. And uh, they're bringing this great offering from the Gentile churches to bring to the church at Jerusalem that is terribly struggling financially. And uh, what were the conversations like there? You know, Luke had been with him at Ephesus, um, Aristarchus. You think of the, the friendships and they're sitting on the deck. and. And, you know, I think they're brokenhearted because it's the elders there from Ephesus at Miletus said that they wept because, particularly because he said, you're not going to see my face anymore. And, you know, these guys realizing their lives are bound with him, they never read the book of Acts. They didn't have a map on a wall with a PowerPoint, you know. Uh, these guys are at sea wondering what's going to happen to Paul. He keeps saying bonds and afflictions are awaiting me. I, I don't care. I need to get there. And sometimes I think, what were their prayer meetings on the deck like? What were their conversations like as they made this journey? And it says, then they came into Tyre. You guys see where that is, right? Tyre and Zidon down there. Come into Tyre there. And when he came there, it says the ship had to unload. That's what was a major port there. And it says, and finding disciples, we tarried there for seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. So Tyre, uh, we, we hear in the 11th chapter and the 15th chapter that he traveled through Phoenicia. That's where Tyre is. Are there disciples there because they had evangelized a bit? Are there disciples there from the persecution of Paul when he drove people out of Jerusalem? Are there disciples there because some had been there on Pentecost? Uh, we don't know, but he finds certain disciples, and he stays there for seven days. He stayed for seven days because he has to find another ship now uh, to take him on the last leg of the journey. And again, finding these disciples, what's it, imagine, you know, this is small town. This is not a big sanctuary. These are probably house churches. And they have all of these remarkable men with, with Paul, Dr. Luke, and Timothy, Titus. You, know, you get on the list of them, so Peter, and they're, they're all there. And what must it have been like to have these guys in your home talking with them? I just think this is a remarkable thing. You know, we kind of read between the lines a little bit and realize there's some sweet, sweet fellowship that's taking place. And the people there in Tyre are probably glad there's not another ship leaving for a week because they get to have them there to themselves. In these other places, he was just staying overnight. And now he's there, and it says, during that week, the people are saying to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Now, it's an interesting problem. Uh, Paul, already aware of it, that bonds and afflictions await me. Are these people in the flesh when they're saying don't go up to Jerusalem? It's by the Spirit. 
I don't think it is. We're going to see the the whole thing that takes place there in Jerusalem, um, and it gives rise to much of Paul's ministry. But, you know, these are people who loved them. These are people who cared about them, and they must in their spirit be feeling, wow, what's going on? The Holy Spirit is ministering. This doesn't seem right. Paul, you know, just bonds and affliction. You didn't, you didn't need to go there. You, what are you going to do in Jerusalem? You know, they're, they're going to they're they're end up in trouble. This is going on. So it says there's that conviction of the Spirit, and they're, they're telling him not to go up to Jerusalem And when he had accomplished those days, when they were finished there, Luke says, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with the wives and the children till we were out of the city, and we kneeled down again on the shore and prayed. Now, that's an eyewitness account by the tenses and and the grammar Luke is remembering. We we went out. We left from there. They came with us. Their wives and their kids came. That, to me, says something about Paul's personality. We don't normally think of them like that. But you can imagine the wives are there. They, they must have loved these guys. The kids come. Imagine what was it like for a little kid, you know, to be seeing these things and thinking about these things. Some of the church fathers, you know, again, Ignatius of Antioch was there when Paul and Barnabas and Silas were there, some of the church fathers, and you think, who, who were some of the significant personalities here that got to spend seven days on? What little kids were amazed as they were there, and they, they prayed with Paul on the beach, and it set the course of their life in a remarkable way. With the wives and the children, we kneeled down, eyewitness, out of the city. We kneeled down on the shore, and we prayed, And when we had taken our leave, one of another, he says again, we took ship, and they returned home. They got on the ship, they left, everybody's waving goodbye. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them then one day, been seven days in Tyre. So we come here to Tyre, then Ptolemaeus, right there. Tyre to Ptolemaeus. How many of you have been to Israel with us? Good, fellow Israelites. Uh, Ptolemaeus is called Akko today. That is the ancient name for it before Ptolemy took the name, one of Alexander's generals. Um, but it is again called Akko. We normally, on our trip to Israel, stop there. Beautiful, beautiful ancient city on the ocean. You can sit there and look at the breakers. It's just incredible. And Paul comes in there to Akko with this whole crew that he's traveling with. It's amazing. And when he comes there, it says he saluted the brethren again, and he stayed with them one day, remarkably. And it says the next day, Um, The next day we that were of Paul's company departed and we came to Caesarea and we entered into the house of Philip, the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and we abode with him. So now this last leg of the journey by sea from uh, Ptolemy, tired of Ptolemy to Caesarea there. 
Tyre, Ptolemy, Caesarea to Caesarea. We'll have to get the next map up if you, if you guys have it somewhere. The, just the one that's got Jerusalem on it. Let's see. You got Jerusalem there. Jerusalem there. So they come now to Caesarea, incredible port city. It was the headquarters of the Roman proconsul and the Roman soldiers in the area of Judea and Israel. Um, the, the amphitheater sits over 20,000 there. There were schools, remarkable. The population was huge. And they come in there to the port at Caesarea. And interesting, as they come there, it mentions Philip. Now, we'll say goodbye to him in the book of Acts after this. What an interesting guy. Peter had been at Caesarea, if you remember. Philip was carried away after the Ethiopian eunuch and then journeyed to Caesarea, went to Azos and Caesarea. And there's no mention of Philip when Peter's there at the house of Cornelius, the centurion. And here, years later, there's no mention of Cornelius, but there is of Philip, and he's living there, and he's got four daughters. Um, so Cornelius has probably had, it by now, a different assignment somewhere else in the Mediterranean world where he's there sharing the love of Christ, again, with the Romans and with the area that, where he is. And now we, we see Philip again as they come here to Caesarea. Now, try to imagine, from all that we know, the last time Philip saw Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And the last time that Philip, and it's specific here, it says Philip the evangelist. You see that? It's the only time in the entire book of Acts the word evangelist is assigned to somebody and used by Luke because he wants to differentiate him from Philip the Apostle. So he specifically calls him Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. And the last time, no doubt he had seen Saul of Tarsus. He, Saul hated the church. He was standing there giving his consent to the stoning of Stephen, who was a dear friend of Philip. And no doubt Philip had only heard what had happened to Saul of Tarsus and the things that were happening. And I just can't imagine what this was like. You know, the knock on the door. And Philip opens up and there's the old enemy standing there, lit up by the Holy Spirit. Probably tears and a smile at the same time. Philip must have a substantial home because he takes all ten of them in and they stay with him. He has four daughters, it says, who prophesy. They're virgins. They're probably all young. Uh, we don't have any more real history of them. Eusebius, the church historian, tells us that they ended up living in Hierapolis. And Papias, uh, who was the bishop of Hierapolis, writes about them being there and what a... Uh, resource they were for those in Hierapolis describing the early church and the foundation of the church and the things that had happened. So remarkable encounter here. It says, they came, we entered into, 30 miles of Caesarea, we entered into the house of Philip, 
the evangelist. Now, he had, he had been driven out by persecution, ended up in Samaria, if you remember, leading many in Samaria to Christ. It tells us in chapter 8 there were miracles and signs and wonders in his ministry. The church in Jerusalem gets word that the Samaritans are getting saved, so they send Peter and John up to check it out, make sure it's real. And, of course, they pray with them there as well. And uh, it says they receive the Holy Spirit and so forth. And then in the middle of that revival, the Lord tells Philip to go out in the desert and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, one guy on a chariot headed back to North Africa. Uh, no doubt ends up, will we'll stand when we see in heaven, a huge influence in that part of the world, a number of the church fathers from North Africa, but he's called an evangelist. He had that way with people. God used him to lead others to Christ. So this is Philip the evangelist. His house is big enough to take in 10 guests and his four daughters were busy for a couple of days, no doubt. But four girls are enough to take care of 10 guys. Um, he was one of the seven. And I wonder if Paul is remembering that. The, the fact that Luke says it there must have been conversations around the table. You know, Philip must have said, we hated you. You know, you really drove us crazy. You must, you know, just the, the, there must have been conversations that this is one of the seven. They knew of those seven. And we abode with him 20 years after Stephen had been stoned. Um, and I think... What is, it, what is the cost, you know, to bring somebody like this into your home? Paul, in Second Timothy, when he's ready to stand before Caesar, he knows that, you know, he's, he's kept his course, he's fought the good fight, you know, he's gone through the whole thing. And he's there and he, he tells, uh, you know, Timothy, when you come, bring my cloak from Troas, bring my parchments and so forth. And then he says, and that Alexander, the coppersmith, God's going to deal with him. So here's, you know, 20 years, 15 to 20 years later, and Paul is still struggling with Alexander, the coppersmith. But here's Philip. Now, the difference is we have no evidence that Alexander, the coppersmith, got saved. But still... Here's a man who drove you out of your home. Here's a man who injured, threatened your life. Here's a man who was involved in the killing of your, one of your best friends, if not your best friend. And 20 years later, the door is opened to let this man come and stay in his house with his family. And I think, you know, help me, Lord, to do that, you know. How do we handle sometimes people who have hurt our family, who have deeply hurt, killing somebody is deeply hurting your friend, you know. And I think, what, what a remarkable thing the Holy Spirit does in the body of Christ, you know. These guys able to sit at the table and break bed, bread and look at each other. And For Philip to say to his girls, he's the one, he drove us out of our minds, he's the guy here, you know. You can imagine this scene. I would love to have some tape recordings of these conversations when Philip's digs here. The same man had four daughters, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, doesn't tell us specifically, there came down from Judea 
a certain prophet named Agabus. Now we've met him in chapter 11, verse 38, where he came in chapter 15, yeah, chapter 15 and chapter 11, where he came, he prophesied about the dearth that was going to come in the land and so forth. Um, that was 15 years prior to this. So he's known evidently in Jerusalem and somehow the Lord's put it on his heart to go to Caesarea. Paul doesn't know he's coming, but he shows up and he has this particular gift of prophecy. Um, it isn't the same as the Old Testament prophets um, who had, you know, the, the inspiration in regards to things being put to the page. Jesus said the prophets prophesied until John, that John the Baptist was the end of the Old Testament prophet family. But he certainly is a prophet, and God uses them. People in the church today have the gift of prophecy, and usually that's speaking forth the word of God. And if we have sons or daughters that do that, we are blessed human beings. But this man has the gift of not just foretelling, but of prophesying as well. God's used him several times in Acts in a specific way. So he comes now to, Paul hasn't seen him for you know years, and when he was come unto us, he took Paul's belt, his girdle, King James, his belt, leather sash. He bound it, uh, bound his own hands and his feet, and he said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, almost like thus saith the Lord, like an Old Testament prophet. Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, this belt, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Agabus doesn't forbid Paul to go. He just says this is what's going to happen. He is not there to give specific direction to Paul. He's just there to say the person who owns this, this is what's going to happen to him. There's no you know, sense of him saying don't go. He doesn't say he's going to be killed. He says he's going to be bound when he goes. And when we heard these things both we and they of that place, we besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't go. They're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Um, you know, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, we prophesy in part, we're told. We don't prophesy perfectly. Then it's going to be different when we're in heaven. And, you know, sometimes people come up with prophecies. I don't know if people have had prophecies for you. People have had prophecies for me. Some of them I like listening to. Some I don't. You know, we're getting, again, ready to leave for Israel. And somebody comes up and said, I saw the plane bursting in the flames and everything, you know. Appreciate that. Um, Paul said those who prophesy edify the church, and I don't feel very edified, so I'm not going to receive that. Maybe you shouldn't eat pepperoni pizza before you go to bed, you know. Because there's always, you know, when I teach, there's always, you know, it's like, again, 
in the summer, you're working, you're sweating, you grab the hose, you appreciate the water's cold, you get a drink, but it tastes a little rubbery, you know? And there's always that aspect in human ministry. You know, there's a gift that's functioning. God allows that to happen. But there's still, you don't want to do that intentionally. There's just a little bit rubbery sometimes. There's that human flavor. Agabus, God's using in a remarkable way to speak these things. And whatever there was about him that may have been obvious in his manhood he still is speaking clearly on part of the Holy Spirit and the things he says come to pass. So don't hesitate to use the gifts that you have. And when we, Luke says, heard these things, both we and they of that place, Caesarea, they besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. They begin to beg Paul. Besought is to beg. They're begging Paul, please don't do this. Don't go up to Jerusalem. Agabus hit this nail right on the head before with the, the famine and the drought. Please don't go to Jerusalem. They're begging him. And then Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and to break my heart? For I am ready, he says, not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he says, understand, I'm ready to go. What are you guys doing? I just, I'm not even, you know, I'm ready to be bound. That's what Agabus said would happen. And that's what Paul seems to understand is going to happen. He said in chapter 20, bonds and afflictions await me. Paul doesn't seem to have the sense he's going to die there. But he says, I'm ready. You guys are breaking my heart here. Very interesting. The phrase there, to break, is, is a classical Greek phrase. It's only found one other time. It means to crush together. And when he tells them they're breaking his heart, this is only used one time in the Bible, one time in classical Greek. So you're crushing my heart. You're crushing me in this, weeping. You know, what do you mean doing this? He says, because I'm ready. And it's emphatic. I mean, I, I, I'm ready. Not to be bound only. It doesn't, none of these things move he said in the last chapter. But also to die. At Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, um, he's, he's going to say in 2 Timothy, you know, that he's finished his course. Chapter 20, none of these things moving from my course. He said, I'm ready. You know, this is a guy who's been stoned, probably killed at Lystra and come back to life again. This is a guy who's already written the Corinthian epistles. And in those, he said, he said, I was caught up to the third heaven. I saw things that were unspeakable. You can't threaten this guy. This is a guy who says we're renewed day by day, not while we look at the things that are, but while we look at the things that are not. The things that are, they're temporary. The things that are not, those are eternal. He says, we're, I, he says every day when I have my eyes on those things, I'm renewed. So here he's saying, you know, what are you doing? You're not going to turn me away from this. I'm ready not only to be bound, but I'm ready to die. He said to be absent from the body, and he's already written it, is to be present with the Lord. So this is a win-win for him, he's saying. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, we left off, and what we said was, 
the will of the Lord be done. Now, if Paul doesn't go to Jerusalem, he's not taken into custody. He doesn't begin his first imprisonment. And we don't have the prison epistles that have changed our lives. So many of them, incredible. No doubt those prison epistles have affected more generations than if Paul had not gone to Jerusalem and had not been bound, had not been locked up. But Luke says we couldn't persuade him. We tried, but we could not persuade him. Paul had already written in Romans... He said this, we know all things work together for the good for them that love God who are called according to his purpose. He he wrote that a few years before this as he wrote the epistle to the Romans. More importantly, Luke says we, we were unable to persuade him to turn away. Paul had written, for I am persuaded, same word, we couldn't persuade him not to go to Jerusalem But this is what Paul is persuaded of. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what he was persuaded of is not what they were trying to persuade him of. He was persuaded, I'm in God's will. All things work together. And there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can do that. Look, you know, we can get ourselves, you get in a situation, you think, Lord, I don't know, did I make the wrong turn? Should have I stayed away? How did I get into this mess? How did I get here? And Paul said, look, all things are working together for the good. You know, and he's not just saying that. It's not just a verse he pulls out of his bread box on the table, you know. This is his life. By this time, he's written 2 Corinthians. He's been shipwrecked this many times. He's been stoned this many times. He's been beaten this many times. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. You read the list of the things. We don't even get to the shipwreck in the book of Acts yet. And he says, I'm convinced in all my experience that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Me, when I'm, if I'm out in the ocean floating around for a day and a half, I'm thinking this is going to separate me from the love. I'm separated from the love of God right now. I don't know about you guys. I, I'm going to see shark fins going around me. I am not going to have a good time. Somehow in all of that, and, and no doubt he puts together some of that after the experience, but still this is a remarkable, remarkable man. It says, Luke says, when we saw that we could not persuade him, then we ceased. We stopped. And what we said was, the will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we took our carriages and we went up to Jerusalem. Now, they're at sea level at Caesarea, so they are going up to 2,400 foot above sea level here. But everybody goes up to Jerusalem, even if you're going down, you're going up, everything goes up to Jerusalem. Carriages there is our luggage. The idea is they packed up, they got their things together, and it's usually used in relationship to a beast of burden. So they probably, some try to say horses. These guys, you can't ride a horse for a couple days. You know, these are donkeys, no doubt. They, They could ride sometimes, probably walked alongside of them. 
It's 65 to 70 miles to Jerusalem from Caesarea, so this is at least two days. And again, you can imagine the conversations. Paul, are you sure? You know, maybe we should listen to Aggie. You know, are you sure? You know, you can, you can just imagine this conversation. And they're going, and it says, we took our carriages, and then we went up to Jerusalem. There went with us, he tells you the company now, also certain disciples of Caesarea. And they brought with them, as the King James says, they brought with them one Nason of Crispus, Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. The, the, the Greek is actually a little different. It says they brought with them two Nason. So evidently, he's a resident of Jerusalem, a Cyprian, but he's, he's from Cyprus, but he's living in Jerusalem. So they're not taking Nason with them. They go to his home. Evidently, he's very well acquainted with the church in Caesarea. Paul would never have gone on his own and just showed up at somebody's house you know, with nine other guys and say, hey, you know, but he goes now, he's got others from Caesarea with him, and he goes to the house of this man, Nason, and it tells us this, five things about him. His name, Nason, he's of Cyprus, where Paul's first missionary journey was. He's old, and he's a disciple, and he's giving them a place to lodge. Now, the interesting thing is here, Nason of Cyprus, it says an, an old disciple. The Greek is he is an early disciple. He's one of the first. You know, we're 30 years after uh, the resurrection or so at this point in time. Did he hear John the Baptist, this guy? Had he heard Christ in the temple courts? Had he watched the whole thing? Did he know Gamaliel or you know, any of the leaders of the Sanhedrin? He's an early disciple and he's come to Christ and no doubt he's been with the Jerusalem church since its beginning. He may have been there on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 got saved. He may have been one of those. But it's interesting, they come now and they stay with Nason of Cyprus an early disciple with whom we should lodge because they're there for Pentecost. The Jerusalem population, normally 500 to 600,000, and it would swell to near 2 million for the holidays. Passover may be a little more popular. Where are we here? We're down here at Jerusalem. Caesarea to Jerusalem is Overland for the first time. And that's 65 to 70 miles, Caesarea to Jerusalem, depending on the, the path, the journey they took. But it's several days to get there. And they come then to this man's house in Jerusalem. Because the population would swell. People would camp outside of Jerusalem. There often wasn't enough time, enough place to find housing in Jerusalem. Um, Jesus will call the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. You're like whitewashed tombs and inwardly filled with dead men's bones. 
Because when the mandatory feast came, the Jew, religious Jews would whitewash all the tombs. Because if you touched a tomb when you came to a mandatory feast, you disqualified yourself. You had to go through this whole cleansing process. So they would whitewash the tombs when pilgrims came from the Mediterranean world to one of the mandatory feasts in Jerusalem. So they come up and there's a man there with enough room in his house that they come into Jerusalem. They have a place to stay and the city is just jammed with people at this point in time. And it says, when we were come, when we were now come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us, the believers, remarkable, they received us gladly. Again, you go through this name of Luke, Titus, Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, uh, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, whoever else now has come from uh, Caesarea. You can understand taking all of these men into your home. This man is very established, it seems. And he takes all of these guys in. It says, it says that, that when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us. Now, just for your information there, we have an us there. And in verse 17, we have a we. And Luke is with Paul in verse 18, us. But we don't hear another we till chapter 27, verse 1. It doesn't mean that he wasn't there, but he doesn't include himself in any of the narrative until the 27th chapter. So Luke remarkably says, the day following, Paul went in with us, look what it says, unto James. And all the elders were present. So is it James' home? Is it where they met with the congregation there in Jerusalem? He goes in the house of James. James' epistle has been in circulation for 12 years by this time. So People through the Roman world, he wrote to the diaspora, they were familiar with James. And this is the Lord's half-brother, and uh, he was the head of the church in Jerusalem. He says that he was there with the elders. doesn't mention any of the other apostles. Thomas was out, had gone towards India. Philip the apostle had gone towards Europe. Uh, the other apostles, Peter may have been in Babylon at this point in time. The other apostles spread out. John ends up to be elder at Ephesus for a number of years before Patmos. So it says, when we were come there, we go into James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had done among the Gentiles in his ministry. So imagine these guys coming to the house of James. How many of these Gentile guys, they, no doubt they gave him the offering. He was the head of the church in Jerusalem. They had heard about him, no doubt, but may even have read his letter, his epistle. But now they're standing with the Lord's half-brother. I mean, what kind of questions? If you could spend an afternoon with James, an afternoon, what would you ask him? What color were his eyes? I, I've thought through this. What was his favorite food? What was he like when he was in the terrible twos? Must have been the wonderful twos, right? Um, what made him smile? Where was his sense of humor? 
What were his favorite days? Cold days, sunny days, spring, fall. What was the tone of his voice like? How did he treat you when you thought he was a lunatic before he revealed himself to you? What's it like to have your older brother be Jehovah? You know, just think, this is James. You know, when he writes, he says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him go and ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. You know, here's James, old camel knees, they called him, because he spent eight to ten hours a day in prayer, and his knees were all deformed from the amount of time he spent in prayer. They said when he died, they almost had to break his legs to get him in the sarcophagus, trying to straighten them out. He said, let me tell you about my older brother. You can go to him. He's saying it to us tonight. And you can ask him if you lack wisdom. He gives liberally. And he upbraideth not. He's not going to scold anyone. Why don't you know this? You've been reading the Bible for 15 years. You don't know what you're supposed to He says he doesn't do any of that. Of course... Of course he spends eight hours a day on his knees. It's his older brother. It's God now. What was their fellowship like? What was their fellowship like? And they go in and meet him, and there he is, James. You know, you wonder how much of, you know, Luke gathered from some of these encounters that he had. How much did Luke gather as Paul was in Caesarea in prison for two years? Did he go back and forth to Jerusalem and so forth? Luke says, we came in unto James. And all of the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, Paul, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Now it's interesting. Verse 19 says he declared particularly. It says in the Greek he particularly means one by one. So James must have been listening, you know, and they, and, and they knew that, you know, Paul had come before, you know, Peter said, look, we can't lay upon the, the Gentiles a, a yoke of bondage that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. Uh, they had written a letter to the Gentiles saying, we lay upon you no greater, thing no greater things burden than these necessary things. Stay away from fornication, blood, you know, idolatry, things strangled. And uh, so some of these men had heard from Jerusalem. They may have read Peter. But when Paul comes in now, he, one by one with James, he tells him about Salamos about Paphos, about Phrygia, about Antioch, about Iconium, about Lystra, about Derbe, about Philippi, about Thessalonica, about Berea, about Athens, about Corinth, about Ephesus, about all of the miracles that took place. You can imagine these conversations and the places he was that we don't hear much about, the brethren in Tyre and so forth. So it says he goes over with James, what's been happening in his ministry, one by one. And I'm, James is not burdened at all. This is his old, older, he's hearing what his older brother's doing all over the Mediterranean world. How remarkable. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, James and the elders, and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, talking to Saul, 
thou seest how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. So he says, look, he said, I want you to understand how many thousands, the, the Greek word there is myriads, those are tens of thousands. How many tens of thousands? They estimate that by the time Stephen was stoned, by the, the gospel that was preached in a number of pictures, that by that time there were at least 25,000 believers in Jerusalem. They say that by the time 70 AD comes and the city's destroyed, there's over 100,000 believers in Jerusalem. So James says, look, look, look at the myriads. There's tens of thousands at this point in time of Jews. Paul must be thinking, because he had already written Romans and said, I could wish myself a curse from the Lord that my brethren would be saved. You read chapter 9, chapter 10, verse 1. This must be, you know, so sweet for him to hear. Myriads, tens of thousands that believe. He says, and they're zealous for the law. Now, I believe my own distorted opinion, that Paul wrote Hebrews, and one of the reasons he wrote it was because of these circumstances. He comes to Jerusalem, and there are thousands of believers that are still zealous for the law. And as we go through this, we're going to realize Paul didn't forbid circumcision. What he said was it's not necessary for salvation. Paul, he never forbid the keeping of the dietary laws. He just said they're not necessary for salvation. He never forbid them from going to the mandatory feasts. They, were, they had the freedom to do those things. What his message was, was righteousness doesn't come to you by keeping the law. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Who is the Jewish Messiah? So keep the feast. If you want to do the circumcise your sons, do those things. But understand that righteousness, salvation, is not through those things. So he, James says, look, you see how many thousands there are that have come to the Lord. They're believers, and they're all zealous of the law. They understood the Jewish Messiah. They understood the prophets. Oh, yeah, look at Psalm 22. Look at Isaiah 53. It's their tradition. It's their life. They're zealous about that. And they are informed of thee, Paul, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children neither to walk after the customs. He said, the problem here, Paul, is, is that amongst these thousands of Jews that are zealous for the law, but they're believers, what they're hearing about you as people come through the city is that you're telling the Jews everywhere in the Gentile territory they can to forsake Moses. He wasn't telling them that. That wasn't his message. His message was justification is by faith. It isn't by keeping the law. You can't be righteous before God. He didn't forbid it anywhere. In fact, he had written um, Corinthians again by this point in time. And he says there, For though I, be, um, though I be free of all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain some. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. 
to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law of God, but under the law of, to Jesus Christ, to gain them that are without the law. So, he, you know, he had already written that. That's already in print to the Corinthians. And, uh, and he's, he's saying, look, I, what I need to do, I do. You know, to, he doesn't ever compromise his theology. He doesn't do that. But James puts him at this challenge here and said, we have thousands, tens of thousands here that believe they're zealous for the law. The, those things are still coming to clarity. And they are informed of you that you're teaching Jews that are out amongst the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Not true, but I'm sure a lot of the Jewish businessmen throughout the Roman world, when they realized they didn't have to be as strict, they could eat with Gentile believers. That was happening in Antioch until certain came from Jerusalem. Peter drew back. Paul had to rebuke him. Um, they, were, they were learning our righteousness, not from keeping the law. We love our customs, but as I can eat with this family of Gentiles. I can do this. He says, but they're hearing that you're telling them to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? Now, the Greek is my suggestion is this. This is what I think you should do. The multitudes must need come together, for they will hear that you're here. This is not going to be small news. Everybody's going to find out that you're here. Do therefore this that we say unto thee. We have four men here which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may have, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing. But thou art thyself also walkest orderly, and you keep the law. Now, he, he says, look, we got this situation. This is what I think you need to do. We've got these four men, they're under a vow, it's singular. So evidently, somehow, these guys decided to pray together about something. They're Jews, so they've kind of taken the Nazarite thing. It's not demanded. They're not under law to do it perfectly, but they've decided to do this, and they fasted. And what you'd have to do to end the Nazarite vow, um, Numbers chapter 6, verses 14 to 17 said you have to offer this offering. You have to offer a sin offering. You have to offer a burnt offering. You have to offer uh, a fellowship offering of food and of grain and so forth. It was expensive. And Jerusalem at this point in time is in, you know, the, the, the economy has turned down. They're in a depression financially. That's why Paul's bought you know, this tremendous offering from the Gentiles, which is probably in Roman script, like banknotes, because it couldn't carry gold coins, be way too much. And uh, he says, go on out with these four guys. And what Paul would have to do then is he would have to go through purification himself. Then he would have to go with these four guys when they're going to break their vow. 
And when they broke their vow, they would shave their head and their beard. They would burn their hair. And then they would offer these sacrifices, which were expensive. Josephus tells us that Agrippa sometimes paid for the sacrifices in the vows of these Nazarites because he understood the economy was bad and how expensive it was, and he wanted to stay in, in good standing with the Jews. So he says, do this, Paul. Go on up. You'll have to purify yourself. You'll go through this whole process of washings and all. Then you'll go with these four men to the priest because if someone's going to pay the price of breaking the vow, that person has to come to the priest, and the priest has to know that person's been purified. That's the only way they could receive the sacrifices from his hand. He says, go with them. You know, he's becoming a Jew to the Jews here. And then they'll know that the things they were informed concerning you, they're nothing. They're not true. But that thou thyself also, that you walk orderly and you keep the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from fornication. So that was the, the meeting in chapter 15. So Paul goes and he does this. We can't go there tonight. If the rapture happens, you can ask him, why did you do that? Because, you know, here's where scholars are all divided. Some say what Paul did was right. He, he went there seeking to have an open door into... Judaism. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. He was in the school of Gamaliel. You know, that, that he went there trying to build those bridges. To the Jews, he became a Jew. That may be true. The, the, the one note is that the outcome of his behavior did not produce the outcome he was expecting. He's going to start a riot. He's going to end up in prison. Uh, but, but it doesn't seem, I think it's hard for us to say there's an error here. The church in Jerusalem is exploding. There are tens of thousands. They're coming out of Judaism. Uh, they don't have a New Testament. James's letter is out. There may be few things to read. No doubt the, the, when they read the prophets, they're, they're seeing more of this Christ now that they trusted than they had ever seen before. But they're still learning their Jewish traditions. You know, that's not our righteousness. It's trusting Christ. Paul knows that for sure because he's been all, all among the Gentiles and seen thousands and thousands and thousands of Gentiles saved and their lives changed to come out of idolatry and filthy things. And Paul has no problem with that. But as he comes back to Jerusalem now, there are these Jews that are struggling. They're hearing, whether it's from the Judaizers, whoever it's from, trying to cause Paul trouble. We know here there are certain Jews that came from Ephesus where they were after him. They were threatening him. And uh, he, he's coming in, and the rumbling in the church amongst the Jewish believers is this guy's making people forsake Moses. And James said, we, we don't need to put this to rest. You know, this, this would, if, when people see this, the priest is going to have to give his blessing to it. It's going to be obvious that you care about these men that took this vow. You're paying the price for them to offer their sacrifice and so forth. Uh, this needs to happen. You know, I've been in Israel 
more than two dozen times. And one of my greatest, you know, my son Josh and I stayed behind when we were there on a church tour. The church went home, and I got to go to, uh, the, in Netanya, the, the, the Bible Institute there, uh, and speak on a uh, class in the morning, half Arab believers and half Jewish believers. And here the Arabs say, look, we don't normally get along with the Jews, but these guys love us. We both have Christ, you know. And then to go from there, and I had, Josh and I had Shabbat at Samuel's house. His father was still alive and broke the bread and gave the blessing. Really remarkable. And then the next day, Saturday morning, I got to preach at the congregation on Prophet Street in Jerusalem. And they're wearing the kippah. They're keeping tradition, but they love the Lord. They love the Lord. And if I had told them, this is nonsense. You don't have to wear those dumb things on your head. You don't have to, you, you don't have to keep some Shabbat on Friday. You know, I'd have started a riot. It was, the tradition was so wonderful. And the congregation, so remarkable. You know, one of the sweetest groups of people. I've, it was one of my highlights of all the trips to Israel. It's one of, undoubtedly, maybe the highlight of all the traveling I've done over there. But you would never try to rip away from them. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll practice the Seder at Passover, but they see Christ there. They see what the Seder's really saying. They understand it now. They understand, you know, the, 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 the blood of the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. They understand on Pentecost, the beginning of the church. Their understanding in the Feast of Trumpets, we may all disappear, you know. They're strong believers in Israel today, 2,000 years later, that hold the traditions of their fathers but are com completely committed to Jesus Christ. So Paul is cast into this monstrous situation with tens of thousands of believers early on, within 30 years of the death and resurrection of Christ. And this church is still sorting all that out. And... Um, the Lord tarries next week. We'll look at it, and a riot begins. I, very interesting. Somebody gave me some writings from the Roman legions, and the one centurion there records a riot that took place in Jerusalem around a man named Paul and what they had to do to quiet everything down, a historical account. So uh, we'll look at that next week. Tonight, um, what do you do with somebody who's hurt you, even if it's 20 years ago? taken one of the most precious things out of your life. What do you do with them? If they get saved, can you take a deep, can you let them in? You know, can you let them in? Remarkably, Philip was able to do that. Are you able culturally to make yourself compatible for the sake of Christ with the circle without compromising your conviction about righteousness, obviously? Are you able to step into those things? Are you able to be persuaded to turn away? If you're going to be persuaded, be persuaded of this, that nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Because the world wants to persuade you of a hundred other destructive and filthy things. Don't be persuaded in that direction. Be persuaded towards the love of Jesus Christ. 
And look, I'm, I'm saying because we see in the church people persuaded into all kinds of compromise and insanity. You know, some of them come back. They don't look like much when they come back, something the cat drug in, but they come back. And then you get to put your arms around them and say, welcome home. We're so glad to see you. You know, and for some of them, you know, the one that the Lord forgives the most and ends up to be the one who loves them the most. Some of them, that's the only seminary course they can take course of the hardhead, which is the course that I took. Uh, but remarkable to, to see what the Lord's doing. So let's stand. Let's pray. I encourage you to read the rest of the chapter. Read through the part we've read through and look at it again. Just imagine we complain if we have to wear a mask on a flight, right? Paul's traveling on this last missionary journey over 2,000 miles on foot and by sea cold, he says, persecution, shipwrecks, being beaten, being stoned. You just imagine. And he says, nothing can turn me away from Christ. Nothing. Much bigger man than I am. Father, we, we settle our hearts. We look to you, Lord, and thank you for this record, Lord. Thank you that we can glance back at this. We can see our brethren, Lord. We think of those myriads of believers in Jerusalem, those tens of thousands of Jewish believers that we're going to stand with any day around your throne, Lord, casting our crowns as they cast their crowns, Lord. Those that you've drawn from every nation and every kindred and every tongue and every race and every people. And Lord, just give us wisdom. You've recorded these things for specific reasons. You had Luke's quill go to the page that we could have, we could have record of these things. So Lord, um, give to our hearts, Lord, as individual sons and daughters, what you would have us have out of this. We trust you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.